Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you, one person. Uh, <laughs> it is wonderful to see you here today at the Vista. If we haven't met before, my name is Austin. I get to serve here as one of our lead pastors. And if you're here for the first time, first time in a long time, whatever, we are so glad to have you. We hope that you feel loved, welcomed, and wanted, that you fit right in and make yourself at home here at Vista. So before we, we jump into our new series, which I am very excited about, I wanted to take a few minutes to have a brief family meeting of sorts where we begin the process of having an exciting but challenging conversation that we will probably need to have on and off in the months and years ahead. Mainly, our community is experiencing a lot of growth. You notice that? It's a lot of car washes on West Adams now. I don't know what the deal is. The coffee I get. I don't get the car washes though, y'all. Every hundred feet, a car wash. Do we wash our cars this much? Do we need this many car washes? I'll let it go. Um, we've got this, uh, this uh, vote coming up. We have to decide if we're going to build some new schools for all these new kiddos who are moving into our community. And you need to get out there and you need to vote. I'm not going to tell you how you should vote, but you need to vote. Because if you don't participate in local politics, you don't get to complain about national politics. Can I get an amen? amen. That's where I stand. That's the position I'm running on. Um, Things are changing. We've got a lot of growth coming to our community. I remember 10 and a half years ago coming uh, here for my, my, my job interview at Vista. It was very informal at the time. Those were different days. And the elders were so excited to bring me out to this desolate cow pasture in West Temple. There, yeah, I'm like, there was a convenience store and then there was backyard barbecue in 10 miles. That was all there was out here. And I remember looking at this desolate cow pasture, standing right here in this desolate cow pasture and thinking to myself, yeah... God's definitely not calling me to Vista, you know? There was a burning bush, and I was like, nope, this is not going to be the place, Lord. Because you can't put a church here. There's nobody out of here. There's not going to be anybody here. And y'all, this, this never happens. It had never happened before. It has not happened since. But as it turns out, I was wrong. <laughs> and uh, yeah, don't get used to it. Uh, and it appears as though God has blessed our very imperfect church, painfully imperfect church, by placing us in this space where we get a really special opportunity to love and serve our community in some really, really special ways. And that leads me to the, the challenging part of this conversation. Uh, mainly, a lot of people are going to be moving into our community over the next few years. It's not going to slow down. It's going to speed up. And so we have to begin the process of trying to discern what God might be asking us to do about that. Because I think we'd probably all agree that God is obviously not asking us to be responsible for like everybody who moves to Central Texas over the next five to 50 years because that would be so hilariously arrogant because there's so many wonderful churches in our community. But on the flip side, I think we would probably all agree that God is probably not asking us to be responsible for nobody who might move to our community in the next five to 50 years. And so this is just a preliminary heads up to let you know that this exciting but challenging opportunity is in front of us. And so we're beginning the process of just sorting out how we might make room for more people who might want to call Vista home. Again, no decisions have been made. This is like a preliminary heads up to let you know because we're a family and we need to have transparency about what's going on. So you can be thinking and praying through that. Uh, and most of all, though, we want to take a moment to remind ourselves that, you know, numerical growth is not and will never be our ultimate priority here at the Vista. Because when a church starts trying to just grow as big as they can, things get really weird, really fat, really weird and gross really fast. And so our goal will never be to grow as large as we can. Our goal will be to be as faithful as we can. And then we will trust God with whatever growth or not growth 
being faithful entails. Right? So again, that's just a preliminary heads up. Who knows what will happen? We may have to add service times, change service times, look at new capacity stuff at some point. Just getting the ball rolling on all of it. Just wanted to give you a heads up. If you have any questions, then you can email probably Dave. I'll let you email Dave on that one. Or John Weibel. You can email Weibel. So today we are very excited to start a brand new series called Good News for Anxious Christians. And it uh, could just be me, but I, I get a feeling there are some anxious Christians in the room today. I'll just speak for myself. I can be a very anxious Christian. But in my defense, there are a lot of things to be anxious about, aren't there? I feel like there are. There's the, the looming specter of World War III. Isn't that one fun? You wake up every morning and you're like, has Putin blown up the world yet? Nope. All right, got another day. Got to pay my taxes. The, the possibility of another pandemic, the utter clown show and dumpster fire that the next presidential election will quite obviously be at this point. Don't think about that one. That'll get you depressed really quick. That's the big meta stuff. But then you've got all this low-grade anxiety, the stuff that's always there. It's never too high, but it's just always there. Anxiety about our jobs and our friendships and our families and our finances. And this could, again, just be my impression, but I get the sense that our struggle with anxiety is probably on the short list for the defining struggles of our age. Every age has its struggles. I, I think we live in an especially anxious age. This impression is confirmed by a recent Pew survey that polled teens and asked them what they felt was the biggest struggle among their peers, and the runaway winner was anxiety. It wasn't even close. 70% of teens said anxiety is a major problem. Much bigger problem than bullying, drug addiction, alcohol, poverty, teen pregnancy, you name it. But rather than talking about anxiety in, in a general sense, because that's not really my field, you know, I'm not a therapist. I could fake one for like five minutes, but you'd find me out pretty quick. And so rather than talking about anxiety in a general sense, what we're going to do in this series is we're going to talk about the relationship between anxiety and faith. Because while there are a lot of things that Christians, you know, can can be anxious about, legitimately, legitimately anxious about in a fallen world. Something has gone terribly wrong when our faith is the major source of our anxiety. Right? In other words, y'all, there are a lot of legit things to be anxious about, but your faith, it's not one of them. Right? Your list of things to be anxious about, it is long, I understand, it is legitimate, but your faith is not one of the things that needs to be on that list. And so when you are anxious about your faith, constantly anxious about whether you're praying enough or praying the right way or you're reading the Bible enough or sharing your faith enough or you're fighting for justice enough or you have enough faith, on and on and on the list it goes. When your faith is the primary source of your anxiety, when your faith is supposed to be the primary source of healing from your anxiety, you remember what Paul said, Philippians 4, 6, you know this verse, be anxious for what? Nothing. And so when our faith is the primary source of our anxiety, then something has gone terribly, catastrophically wrong. And this could, again, just be my impression, but I really do think that for a lot of us in the room today, your faith is the major source of your anxiety. Think about that. And it's for, for good, sincere reasons. Like, I get it, because we want to be good Christians. We want to do the right thing and make God happy and change the world, on and on and on it goes. But again, faith does not make us anxious. Let that sink in. Faith does not make us anxious. And so if your faith is making you anxious, then that probably means that you're walking around with some burdens that God hasn't actually asked you to carry. 
A lot of you are walking around with some heavy stuff on your shoulders and you think you're doing it for God and God's like, I, I haven't asked you to carry that one. And so what we're gonna do in this series is I'm gonna spend, well, put it this way, instead of lecturing you about all the things that you should be doing better, and so that's what a lot of Christian preaching is, isn't it? That big wagging index finger. You need to do this more, you need to do that more, and then with that other five minutes of your life, you better be doing this thing more. Instead of lecturing you about all the things that you should be doing better, I'm gonna spend a month talking to you about a lot of things that you probably think that you have to do. A bunch of things that you probably think that you have to be, that you don't actually have to do, that you don't actually have to be. I'm gonna spend a month taking some burdens off your shoulders that aren't meant to be there. Does that sound good? It's gonna be good, I promise. We're gonna start this morning with this. You do not have to be certain. If you got your Bibles, grab them. Be in Matthew 28. I promise this is the last time in Matthew for a while. Can't seem to get away from it. Been there since Jesus left. Matthew 28. It's been a long time, I know. Last time. Verses 16 through 20 will be on the screen for you. I'll be reading from the New American Standard Translation. But the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. Jesus has told them to meet him there. Now when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and he spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. <clears throat> Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. So Dave preached on this exact same text last week. He focused on verses 18 through 20 on the Great Commission. And he mentioned that I would be circling back to verses 16 through 17 this week. Dave also mentioned this, and I agree with him, that verses 16 through 17 are some of the most interesting verses in the entire Bible. In my opinion, they are the most interesting verses in the entire Bible. Right? These 11 disciples, they've gone out to this mountain in Galilee where Jesus has said he's going to meet them. We've got to remember that in Matthew's gospel, the disciples have not yet seen Jesus resurrected. You remember? It was the two Marys. They go to the tomb. It's empty. On the way to tell the disciples, they experience the resurrected Christ. But the disciples have not yet seen resurrected Jesus for themselves. So can you imagine what they're feeling as they hike up this mountain in Galilee? I mean, y'all, you know, they're like filled with excitement because... Like, what if it's true? <laughs> if it's true, then everything is different and nothing will ever be the same. But there's also a little bit of trepidation because they want to believe the women, but the women have told them a pretty unbelievable story. Right? So they're hiking up this, this mountain. They finally get over that last ridge, foot on the summit, and there he is with the resurrected Christ is standing right there in front of him. It's so it's all true. The women were telling the truth. Jesus really is the Son of God. Death has been defeated and things will never, ever, ever be the same. And so they're so happy to fill with joy. They're high-fiving, hugging. They walk away from this meeting with the resurrected Christ filled and the indestructible, certain knowledge that Jesus Christ is the truth and he will be with them always to the end of the ages. Amen? Amen. Only that's totally not what happens. You would think that's what would happen. You would think that's what would go down. You would think that's what Matthew would say in Matthew 28, verses 16 through 17, but this is not what happens. Rather than being filled with, you know, instant, invincible, and indestructible faith, we're told that these disciples, they see the resurrected Christ, and they worship him, but some were doubtful. That's what the text says. 
And this phrase, but some were doubtful. It's a bit tricky to translate from the Greek. Most of you are aware the New Testament was written in Greek, so we've got to do a little bit of work to get it over to English so we can understand it. We basically have two options. Option one is what we've just read, and it translates the phrase to mean that we've got like one group of disciples who are worshiping Jesus, and then we've got one group of disciples who are still doubting Jesus. So the idea is that Peter, James, and John, you know, they're the inner circle teacher's pets. They're worshiping Jesus, of course, but then you've got this other group of disciples, and they're still doubting. We won't name any names, but <laughs> Thomas, right? We know it's Thomas. And that's possible, but um, I think the better translation is probably option two. And it translates the verse like this. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but they doubted. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but they doubted. So the idea in this translation is that it's, it's not that there's one group of disciples who are worshiping and then one group of disciples who are doubting, but rather it's that all of the disciples worship and all of the disciples doubt. Not two separate groups. They all worship and they all doubt. And there are a number of reasons why I think this is a better translation involving Greek articles and pronouns that I will not bore you with here, but if your baby ever can't sleep, call me, put me on speakerphone, explain it all to you. But the primary reason that I think this is the better translation is because Matthew, in writing his gospel, has been very clear from beginning to end that the disciples are people of what he calls little faith. All throughout Matthew, he's really clear. The disciples, they really don't have much faith. We'll just look at a few places. Matthew 6, verse 30, this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talking. He says, But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Matthew 8, 25 through 26, the story of the storm at sea. And the disciples, they came to Jesus. They woke him up saying, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. And Jesus said to them, Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? Similar story in Matthew 14 involving Peter. His mouth has outrun his faith. It's very typical for Peter. But seeing the wind, he became frightened. And beginning to sink, Peter's walking on the water. Remember, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of Peter. And he said to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? Think about this. Jesus could have chose whoever he wanted to be his disciples, right? Anybody. Jesus could have chosen anybody. And yet, who did Jesus choose? Well, by his own admission, Jesus chose people of little faith. And not only little faith, but people whose faith is so little that they could stare eye to eye with the resurrected Christ and still doubt. Isn't that kind of an unbelievable story? They're standing up there. Jesus is right there. And some of them are like, I don't know, man. I mean, have you seen Chris Angel? He predicted the first round of the NFL draft on Thursday. It's pretty unbelievable. I don't know, Jesus. I'm going to need to see more than this. It's almost as if Jesus, y'all, when he was deciding who he was going to call to be his disciples, he was like, okay, here's the plan. I need the 11, 12 losers in Israel with the least amount of faith. And that's who I'm going to take to be my disciples. It seems like that's what Jesus did. And then furthermore, this is the craziest part of the story. Jesus was perfectly comfortable leaving his mission to take the gospel to the ends of the earth into the hands of this group of losers who see resurrected Jesus and still doubt him. Jesus didn't freak out about it. He was like, it's okay. I would have thought you'd maybe believe a little bit more, but that's fine. Go out into all the nations and tell people about me. Jesus was perfectly fine with that. If you're new here, 
this may come as a bit of a surprise to you. But over the years, I have tried to be very honest with you and let you know that I am not a person for whom faith comes easily or naturally. It's just never come easily for me. And I know that it does come easily and naturally for a lot of you. I know that a lot of you could not doubt if you tried. (laughs) And that is awesome. And I am sincerely happy for you, but it has never been that way for me. I have always been a little bit of a doubter. I have. I wrote a book about it a few years ago. It's called Faith in the Shadows. My mommy said it's great. Um, So (laughs) there's that. I remember being very young. Uh, I was in this Sunday school class. I got into an argument with my Sunday school teacher. Shocking, I know. Uh, It was at this very well-meaning but very, very conservative Southern Baptist church where we occasionally went when I was younger. And we were in this argument because he was telling me that the dinosaurs could not be real because they weren't in the Bible. And I was only 10 years old, but I remember telling this very well-meaning Sunday school teacher, listen, man, if you're going to make me choose between JC and T-Rex, okay? (laughs) Hey, if you're going to make me make this decision, you're not going to be happy with the decision I make. Because I had seen those T-Rex bones. I had touched those T-Rex teeth. And I had loved T-Rex before I even knew about Jesus Christ, right? Jesus had died for my sins, but T-Rex could eat a brontosaurus. And when you're 10 years old, the latter is much cooler to you. It was always a problem for me. And I've always been that way, man. I've always had some kind of, kind of doubt. I've always had all these questions, questions about, you know, you name it. How do we know for sure Christianity is the truth? Isn't everybody in here basically just practicing their parents' religion? Yeah, we all think we're right. But of course, yeah, there's a bunch of, you know, Buddhists somewhere and they all are talking right now about how they're all right. And there's a bunch of Hindus over there and they're all talking about how they're, everybody thinks they're right. Questions about how a good God, an infinitely good God, could allow so much evil and suffering in the world, could allow children to suffer and die. And so while I've always had some kind of faith, I've never had a faith that I would call certain. Just never had it. I've always had some mix of faith and doubt, doubt in my faith and faith in my doubt. And for a really long time, I was under the impression that this was unacceptable, and I was so ashamed of it. I was so ashamed of it. Because I thought that your faith had to be certain, or it wasn't really faith. Like, either you are certain, man, about everything. Either you are certain that Jesus is Lord, was raised from the dead, the Bible is true, and every single other article of Christian faith. Either you are certain about everything, or you don't believe anything. That's what I was taught to believe. And I know that a lot of us have been walking around with this exact same burden on our shoulders because we have been led to believe that faith is this binary decision between certainty and unbelief. Man, you are certain about everything or you don't believe anything. And those are your only two options. And when that's what you think about faith, then you have set yourself up for some pretty severe anxiety, haven't you? I, I think you have. Because let's be, let's be honest with each other here. Okay? And I know this might make some of us uncomfortable, but as I mentioned, we might need the space. Um, <laughs> let's just be honest and admit that none of us here today are certain. Right? None of us are certain. How, how could you possibly be certain? Were you there when Jesus was raised from the dead? Oh, wait a minute. Even if you were there, you wouldn't be certain, right? That's what we just learned from the 11 disciples. How could you possibly be certain when the 11 apostles who saw resurrected Jesus 
We're not even certain. It is delusional. It's crazy. And most importantly, it's not biblical. And that's why it's so sad that so many of us believe that we have to be certain because now we are walking around every day with this impossible, miserable, neurotic burden wherein we are trying to convince ourselves that we are certain about something that God has not asked us to be certain about. Walking around with this boulder of certainty on our shoulders and God's like, why are you doing that? We're like, we're doing it for you, Lord. Please give us faith. And God's like, you're not doing that for me. I didn't ask you to do that. Have you read your Bible? Philip Carey is a theologian who's done a really good job exploring this certainty-seeking and anxiety-producing, and those things always go together, form of faith that many of us mistakenly practice, and he calls it reflective faith. Reflective faith. And the idea with reflective faith is that reflective faith is faith that likes to sit around and reflect upon itself all day. Faith that likes to anxiously stare at itself in the mirror all day long. You know what I'm talking about? It's all day long staring there in the mirror, worried that your faith isn't good enough or pretty enough or perfect enough, anxiously putting concealer over all the doubts, Botox over all the little doubt wrinkles that pop up there because none of that stuff is obviously acceptable. And he makes the really convicting observation that this reflective faith that's always obsessively looking and reflecting upon itself kind of faith that many of us practice and mistakenly think is faith is enormously unhelpful and unbiblical because it teaches us to have faith in our ability to have faith. Follow me here. Because if you think that God will be faithful to you, if and only if you're able to get your faith certain enough, then what you really believe is that God will be faithful to you if you can be faithful enough to God. That's what you really believe. And to state the obvious, y'all, I mean, A, that would be really bad news. If that's the way faith works, we are all in some trouble because none of us are ever going to be certain. And B, if that's the way faith works, I mean, that's, that's kind of the anti-gospel, isn't it? I, I think that's basically the exact opposite of the gospel because the gospel is not that God will be faithful to you if. Anytime you hear an if, it's not the gospel. The gospel is not that God will be faithful to you if you can get certain enough with your faith because that would make the gospel primarily about your faith. But rather than being primarily about you and your faith, the gospel is first and foremost about what? Not you, about God and God's faithfulness to you, not your faith in God. In other words, faith, and this is so simple but so helpful, faith is not having faith in your ability to have certain faith in God. Faith is trusting God's faithfulness to you. Let me say this again. Faith is not having faith in your ability to have perfect faith in God. Faith is trusting God's faithfulness to you. And so many of us, for good intention, well-intentioned ways, have got this completely backwards. We're going to look at a text that really explores this well. Romans 3, verses 1 through 4. This is the Apostle Paul talking. should sound familiar. Paul says, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Well, it's great in every respect. First of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God. I love that verse. May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. 
Many of you will remember from our semester-long walk through Paul's letter to the Romans that what Paul is talking about here is this issue of God's faithfulness to Israel and why so many Jews had rejected Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. It was an enormous problem for Paul. And so what Paul starts talking about here in Romans 3 and then fleshes out in more detail in Romans 9 through 11 is that no matter how bad Israel's rejection of God appears, God will never reject Israel, ever. Because Israel's unfaithfulness cannot nullify God's faithfulness. And so even though Israel's faith is not what it should be, God will still find a way to be faithful to Israel. Because the gospel is the good news that our unfaithfulness cannot nullify God's faithfulness. So let's end with this. God has made promises to you. Good ones. Not because you deserve them, you do not, but just because God is kind. That's the only reason, period, full stop. And God has promised that his faithfulness is more powerful than your doubt. God has promised that his faithfulness will swallow up all of your unfaithfulness. And God knows that you, just like those 11 disciples on that mountain, God knows that you are a person of little faith. Okay, some of you thought that was like a secret. It's not a secret. Okay, you are. You don't have much faith. God knows that Jesus knows that. And so frankly, God is just not that worried about your doubts. And so why are you? I don't mean to sound cavalier here. We just saw it though in the text, right? The disciples are standing on the mountain. They're still doubting and Jesus doesn't freak out. He's not like, wait a minute, you losers still do not believe? Like, I knew you had a little bit. I was hoping for like something, man. You're giving me nothing to work with. Turn back time. We got to get some people who aren't complete knuckleheads and then I'll give my mission to them. No, Jesus sees these people doubting. What's the next thing he says? Go out into all the nations and tell people about me. You know, Thomas in the back going, good, good. Jesus, I know Thomas, shut up, shut up, shut up. Get out there and tell some people about me. I know you've got doubts. It's not a big deal to me. So if it's not a big deal to God, why is it such a big deal to you? And can you see the difference this makes? Can you feel it? Feel that load off? When you stop giving your doubts so much credit, when your faith stops anxiously staring at itself in the mirror all day, (gasps) instead of your faith staring at itself all day, your faith starts to look, I don't know, man, like at God. (laughs) Instead of looking at yourself, your faith looks at God and God's promise to swallow up your faithlessness with his faithfulness. Can you see the difference that makes? I'll tell you the difference it's made for me because I still struggle with doubt sometimes. I do. Every single time I do a funeral for a child, every single time I watch a little coffin, and I've seen some little ones, lowered into a little hole in the ground, I I feel the doubt creep in every single time. And so my faith is not immune to doubt, and it probably never will be. But something has changed for me over the years. Mainly, my doubt no longer constitutes a crisis of faith for me. My doubt, it no longer constitutes a crisis of faith for me. And what I mean by that is, you're like, when I doubt, it's no longer some big existential thing where I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so terrible. I can't believe this. Do I even believe in God? This is the worst thing ever. It's not a crisis to me because I know it's not a crisis to God. Because I know that God knows that I am a person of little faith. 
God knew that when God called me. And so frankly, if God is not going to freak out about my doubts, then why in the world, how stupid is it for me to freak out about him? God's not freaking out about him. All that to say, this morning, I, I want to give you an invitation to do something that is so hard. It's so hard. But it's so liberating if you can move towards it. I want to invite you to stop placing your faith in you and your ability to have faith. I know that's what a lot of you thought faith was, but it's not. Stop placing your faith in your ability to have faith and start placing your faith in God's faithfulness to you and God's promise to swallow up your faithlessness with his faithfulness because that is the gospel. Let's pray together. Gracious God, thank you for today. We do not deserve to be here. Every breath in and every breath out is grace, and we are so grateful for it. We come before you this morning, and man, there are a lot of burdens in the room this morning, a lot of things that we're walking around with, and of course, the sad thing is a lot of us are walking around with burdens that you have not asked us to carry. And for various reasons, we thought you did. In particular, we, we feel, we feel, think that you've asked us to have this perfect, certain, never-doubting faith, and we're not up to the task, and so it is draining and exhausting, and it makes us anxious and confused and angry and full of it, and so we pray that in these moments, God, you would, you would relieve the burden of our certainty, that you would help us to see that you know that we are people of little faith. You knew that when you called us. And you have not asked us to have faith in our ability to have faith. You have asked us to trust in your great faithfulness to us. And so we pray that you would sow those seeds this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.